You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. On today's episode, we once again have Paul Patera on as a guest. If you didn't listen to the last episode, we discussed some of the tools and techniques that Paul uses for hunting, and it was a lot of really great info. So I definitely recommend listening to that one if you haven't already. This episode is more of a BS session in which we discuss a variety of topics. Discussion areas on this episode include tag strategies, broadheads and arrow setups, shot selection, tracking dogs, proficiency tests, staying warm in cold weather, saddle hunting platforms and some of the modifications that we've done to various ones, and tips for efficiency with both tree stands and saddles. Before we dive in, a quick message about Spartan Forge. The app is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. A huge feature is the Intel tab, which allows hunters to view the upcoming detailed forecast in an area, including temperature, pressure, wind, and moon data, but also provides the proprietary deer movement prediction algorithm. Instead of stating just whether or not it's going to be a good or bad day to hunt, the app predicts the type of movement most likely based on the conditions, whether it's core area movement, transition area, or full range daylight activity, all based on GPS collared deer studies. You can use that information then to help inform your hunt. The app also has a built-in journaling feature and a fully featured map, which you can use to e-scout and navigate in the field. Use the code DIY for a discount on a Spartan Forge membership. With that, let's dive into the episode. Recap so far, you've shot two bucks already this year, or is it two or three? Yeah, I got got the two, two big ones in Jersey. And so now is your focus shifting back to like the, the late season stuff with like those um, those areas that you have gravitated toward like the last couple of years where you got some of those beans, but then you got like the, the bigger mountainous type, uh, country yeah. pretty close by. Yeah. That's actually where I killed those bucks this year over in that, that stuff in the mountains, but not, not so close to the beans more up in the mountains. Remind me if I remember from our discussion last year, when we had this, like that late season podcast was, there was like a number of deer with one being like bigger than the rest that you were chasing late season. Were any of those deer, do you think, you know, some of the deer that you shot this year, do you think those are totally separate animals? Uh, they were different. Okay. Yeah. It was, uh, the same, it's the same, same pattern, but it's just farther, farther down. Okay. Down. It's like probably, probably like eight miles away from where I was hunting those deer last year. Gotcha. But it's the same same thing. It's a mountain range with the deer coming down off the mountain, heading to the the bean fields and the agriculture. And do you have then two tags left to fill in that state for like what um, you have available? Yeah, I got muzzle loader and I can fill a bow tag. But I think I'm going to focus on scouting up in Pennsylvania with my buddy for the next week or so. If he wants to check some spots, I figure I'll, I'll go with him and show him show him what I do. Nice. See, 
see if I can help him out a little bit because he's on some pretty nice deer up there too. He just hadn't sealed the deal on him yet. So hopefully if he follows me around and sees how I'm doing it, he'll have some idea on how he's got to do it because I, I just don't think he was aggressive enough last year or this year to get on the, the bucks he was on. He was on some really nice deer. I wish I had more time to travel. There's you know a handful of guys that I'd like to go and and just like spend a day in the woods with. You're one of them. Um, I like, I like doing that a little bit, you know, just getting a feel for what it's like, you know, sort of a day in the life. Um, uh, I, I feel like that's the best education you can get a lot of times. Yeah. I'll tell you what, if you want to meet me in next year, more than welcome to. And we, we ran a ton of cameras this year. We had a lot of daylight bucks on cameras on scrapes that last week, October. So. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in there kind of before the army shows up and starts hunting, you know, before all the pressure gets in there. That yeah. way I, I might be able to get on a buck with a pattern. You know, he might not be like cruising, like rut cruising, but I think he'll be more killable if he's coming out of a bedding area and dropping down into like scrapes and stuff like that and or hitting rub lines or something. You know, just like doing his thing, but not like, not doesn't have any does to chase because once they lock on a doe i think it's a pain in the butt i agree i I think you hear that from a lot of guys too and i know i definitely see that being the case in the places that i hunted this year for some of the deer i was after was man it was like my window like the easy window easier window was like i'd say october 20th through like november 1st and then after Mm -hmm. that it was it's like chaos you know, it's yeah. like you might, you you might lot, see a buck. You need a but... lot of deer. Yeah, yeah. Like if, if you don't have a high deer population, it's hard because all those big bucks are going to just be on does every single day. Right. You know, and it's just a pain in the butt. Because how many days? How many days of the season do you think a big buck is actually looking for a doe in daylight? You know, I mean, it probably doesn't have to. It's depending on what the you know ratio is, it doesn't have to be that many. Yeah, he might find one in a couple hours at night. I mean, when they want to find one, it's not going to be hard for them to find one. Yeah. You know, they know where they're going. Like, the way they – because they already spent all that preseason in October walking around and checking them, you know, and running scrapes. They know exactly when those those does are going in the heat. You know, I really feel like that's what – they just – they know. It's like – you see the younger deer, they're, they're looking around because they don't really have an idea what's going on yet. But those older bucks, I think they just, they know exactly when that doe's coming in the heat. They can smell it. You know, they can sense it in that scrape. Yeah, I ran cameras on mostly scrapes this fall. And the, the window where the biggest, most big deer were daylighting was definitely like during that, like... You know, some people say even up to like the 7th, 8th of November can be really good. But for mm-hmm. me, it was it was even before that that they started to really kind of tail off, and at least in terms of like when I was getting pictures of them. Um, yeah. And even on November 1st, I think it's pretty sure it was November 1st. might have been October 31st. Uh, there was one of those big bucks I, I saw like hounding a doe pretty hard through some um, through some blowdown. And it was like kind of once once that shift happened, it was like, I would still get a lot of deer on the cameras, but not as many of those big ones. And it would just be like very sporadic after that point. Mm -hmm. Well, I I got on a buck locked on a doe. The like probably 
like mid-October this year. I got a, a real big buck. That's the one I, I missed. Yeah. I, I missed that sucker twice in the same day. He was he was so locked on that doe, he wasn't going anywhere. You know, I, I literally, I, I my buddy called me up because I was at work, and he calls me up at like 8 o'clock in the morning. He's like, there's a giant buck locked on a doe on the backside of this guy's field. He's like, right behind that is the is the pri- or, uh, the public land. I'm like, he's probably going in and out of that. I'm like, well, I, I know exactly where it is. I'm going to go see if I can't get in that party. Yeah. And I, I took off from work, and I just jetted down the road and drove in there. I was in my blue jeans and a sweatshirt chasing that deer around. And, I mean, I got on that deer, and I kind of, like, worked through the air. I'm, like, trying to figure out where he is, glassing over to CRP grass and stuff. And then all of a sudden, I kicked up a kicked up the doe. I busted the doe out, and she goes one way. And then I look, and I see the buck, and he sees me, makes direct eye contact with me, and takes off and runs the other way. I'm like, holy crap. So I, I turned around, and I went right back up to my, my Jeep, and I got a set of rattling antlers out of my Jeep. I went down right where that doe was, where I blew that doe out. I sat for like an hour, and then I just crashed the antlers together as hard as I could. And that buck came in like 100 miles an hour right at me. Were we on the ground at that point, it sounded like? Yeah, he was, he's just fired up. Absolutely fired up. And then that deer came in. I couldn't get a shot at like six, seven yards. I couldn't get a shot at him. He came in, and he came in and winded me again and blew out again. And then the following day, well, I actually, I saw the buck then locked on that doe in the evening. I set up up by the, the field where he was locked on her in the field. I'm like, maybe she's going to go back out towards that field and he'll be right behind her. And I get set up up there on the property line. And that buck comes, comes out and he stood in front of me for four hours just standing over that doe, like in the afternoon. And then finally it got dark and I had to get out of there. And I just left my stand and everything right in the tree. And I, I left and I came right back in the morning in pitch black and got right back up in that tree. And literally I sat in that tree for like five minutes. I hit my grunt call once it got shooting light and that buck came right in again. And I literally, he came in like 40 yards. I, I had a perfect shot standing broadside at 40. Of course, I didn't realize I was having all these mechanical issues at that point with my bow because what happened my rest was my rest wasn't returning to zero every time but i wasn't catching it because like after you shoot the bow a couple times it would start moving it and it would like go back where it's supposed to every time but if i let it sit for a couple hours i don't know it would get like stuck again huh if that makes if that makes sense it was like it wasn't coming all the way back because it was like packed with, it was like packed when I took the rest apart and cleaned it. It was packed with dirt, like oh. up inside the the pivot. So it had like dirt up inside there, and it was getting getting like stuck every once in a while. Something would get get right just perfect, so it wouldn't rotate a hundred percent. So when I was shooting at my deer, my bow was was wasn't tuned right every time. So sometimes it would shoot perfect, and other times it'd be no good. I had it happen once where 
my rest just wasn't raising up all the way. Like it only get up to 80, 90% like full in the upward position. Yep. And I actually had to get mine. I had to send mine in to get that fixed. Uh, but then my wife had yeah, another yeah. issue where it wasn't, I think it wasn't dropping all the way if I remember right. But what we ended up doing to, to fix that was her, uh, her cord had actually like fallen out of the little, like, you know, the little spongy things or the, the rubber grippers that you put on your limb. Um, yeah. it, it came off of that. And so it was sliding around on her limb and giving a really inconsistent like starting point. Mm-hmm. And by the time we finally realized that it was an easy fix, but for a while there it was like just pulling yeah, your hair out and trying to figure on. out what was going on. Right. Yeah. That, it, that, I, that played me all year. Cause I, I'm like freaking out. I'm thinking I'm like shooting really bad and I got like target panic or something. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I, I thought I was right on that deer. I'm like freaking out. Why, why didn't I hit that deer? You know, because I missed two two big bucks that year. Yep. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm like, what is going on? You know, and then finally I figured it out. I was like, oh, well, duh. But it was like, man, if I didn't, if I would have figured that out sooner, I would have shot a 150 inch ten pointer. Yeah. You know, it was a beautiful buck because I I missed that deer in the morning, and then I set up in the evening on the opposite side of the drainage and that buck came right back up right at dark. And I missed him again at like 30 yards. I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, I was dead on that time. I'm like, I must be like, must be like punching the trigger or something. Yeah. There's a, there's a tough, um, cause to a certain extent, if you have a lot of confidence in yourself, you can be like, Oh, it's the equipment, right? Like that could, that's your first, it couldn't have been me. It had to be the equipment. But then it's like on the other, the other way of looking at it is, you know, let's assume my equipment's good. Like what did I do wrong? And I don't know that there's necessarily like a, a right or wrong way to tackle that, that issue. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm the type of guy who, who typically looks at the equipment first, unless I just know that it was a bad, like a poorly executed shot. But mm-hmm. it was, it was one of those things too. If you shot a broadhead, at a block next to a field point at 20 yards, it wasn't spread apart enough to really like go, Oh yeah, that's problem. You know? Right. But, but when I was shot at 30 plus, then it was like, wow, this thing's shooting like 12 inches high. But it wasn't, I should have, I, I should have been test testing it out at extended range. I think to figure that out, you know, I think I would have seen the I would have seen the 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 problem magnified a little bit. Yeah. You know, and I, I just, it was just like, you know, I'm like here I am like making sure everything's on half the time shooting my bow with in driveway under the headlights of my Jeep at night cuz I'm like going hunting every day. You know, I I should have just taken a I should have just stopped hunting for one day and spent time just shooting my bow and figured it out. Yeah, but I, at the same time, I'm like, like you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm blaming myself for it. I'm like, there's no way my bow's screwed up. I'm like, it's probably just me, you know, because a couple of years ago, I did go through some issues with target panic. I was shooting bad. So I was like, it's probably just me having demons again. Well, it's good to know that it was an equipment thing because that's infinitely easier to fix than a, a mental game. Yeah, as soon as it, once I knew it was an equipment thing, I'm like, oh, all right. I'm like, I feel much better about myself now. Yeah, you know, because even the two bucks I killed, I didn't hit them perfect. 
you know, I hit him good, but I didn't hit him perfect. I, I was kind of upset with myself over that because I'm like, that doesn't usually happen with me. I usually, I usually don't have any issues hitting deer. Yeah. Um, but it's all figured out now, and I can't wait to go shoot another one. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited myself for uh, the next, I guess, several weeks. I have a couple of tags that are still open. Realistically, most of my focus for the rest of the year is probably going to be toward the, the Iowa muzzleloader tag. But I still have a Wisconsin tag that I need to move some cameras around because uh, things have shifted since, you know, there's, it's been basically open rifle season for almost a rifle and or muzzleloader for almost a month. Um, and one of my cameras is still, it, it's getting one like really nice deer. And I think I know that one's like core area decently well. But there's still a, a few other ones that I need to relocate. So I don't know how much time will be spent toward that versus Iowa. Iowa will probably have to be the priority, but uh, we'll kind of see how it goes. Yeah, I'm I'm going to start getting points for Iowa, I think. I'm going to start building those up. I want to shoot one with the bow out there. So it's going to be a while before I get out there, so I figured I'd just buy points every year so that I can go in wherever I want when I finally can go. Right. Because you know, I'm probably not going to be able to do that trip every year. Yeah. I think that's like eighteen hour drive or something for me. <laughs> yeah, it's about like me driving out to Pennsylvania. What my wife and I have been talking about next year is you know, to to try and avoid these scenarios where we have too many tags and like trying to fill everything at once. Um structure more to where early season we hunt Minnesota and Sam's after any buck. And I'm after basically a traditional deer. I you know, hunt with my trad bow in September and I just have low standards and, you know, shoot whatever. And then, okay, now we can move on and start focusing on Wisconsin. Focus on that through pre-rut and early rut. Give ourselves all the time that we need, hunt there every day. And then if we both tag out there, that's like, oh, now, now we got, you know, could buy a North Dakota tag, go hunt late rut out there, could do like something else. Um, but that might be a little yeah. bit easier way to, to segment our year. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it too. You can change it throughout the year, you know, through every year you can do something like, okay, this year we're going to hunt it this way. You know, you can keep, keep it different. Yep. Keep it fresh. Always have something different. As a next year I'm, I'm planning on, I want to do Maryland and West Virginia you know, I might not even focus too much on Jersey next year. I might try to get over there and get one down in those two states. I want to get, I want to hunt some new states next year. Because I, I was planning on going this year, but I, it didn't work out, so I didn't get to go. So hopefully next year. Try something different because everybody hunts down, everybody goes Midwest to go hunting, you know. Everybody wants to hunt those deer, so might as well try something different. I'll go down the Appalachian Mountain. Yeah, that'll be fun. <laughs> Less of a destination yeah. for sure for out of staters. Yeah, that's what I figured. It might might find some little hit, hidden hot spots that nobody even thinks about. You know, you never know. You might wind up shooting something you never thought you'd shoot in a place like that. Yep, that's true. Yeah. That's even more rewarding when you do it that way. 
Okay, I got to get practicing with my bow pretty soon. Get ready for winter bow. Yeah, same here. Um, I, I've been contemplating moving my poundage back down, but it's still, I've got everything set just because I don't want to monkey around with a tune or anything. That's a, I, I set mine at 65. Yeah, mine's at 70, 76, I think, right now. Because I, I, I actually, I like having it, I don't want it, want it maxed out because then it gives me a little bit better adjustment. Mm-hmm. So if I got to, if I want to bring my poundage up or down to change something, I can do it that way. Yeah. Because sometimes like you get like, you know, you get colder weather and stuff, your arrow trajectory changes a little bit. And instead of moving all your pins around, if you just take your poundage and drop your poundage a half a pound, all your, all your pins will line back up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you got to bring it up a little bit and you just crank it up a little bit more and you're right back to all your pins hitting in the same place. Yeah, it's a good way to do it. And it gives you a little tuning. You can tell her a little bit if you got to or whatever. Yeah, hopefully I won't have to monkey around with it too much. Last time I yeah. shot it, it was still it was shooting decently while I made a couple you know, minor tweaks. Um, the biggest thing, I think, I feel like the strings can change tune pretty drastically through temperature swings sometimes. Yeah, when you texted me earlier, it uh, when when you were having your issues with your bow not hitting where you thought it should, I went out and just checked mine, and I was hitting like four inches high, I think, at forty. So I had to readjust everything. But since that, because that was it was still pretty cold, I think, when that happened. Um, so it really hasn't shifted too much. But yeah, I'm just gonna continue to double check it. Yeah, I'm like really tempted to put one of the uh, the micro adjustable vapor trails on there. Uh-huh. So if I do have to do a tuning change, it's so much easier to just have the little click Yeah. on the rest. I'm like, man, I'm like, I never thought I would need something like that, but I'm like, man, it would be a lot simpler to tune something. And you're like, oh, I just loosen this bolt and one click, and I'm back to normal again. Yeah, I've got the that micro-adjustable Hamski, and it's pretty nice for just when you know when you're close, and it's like you just give it a little bit more of a bump and... Yeah. You don't have to worry. It, about, you don't like, have to worry about you know breaking the screw loose, and then you're like trying to shift it just a little, you know, one little line over, and all of a sudden it slips, and it goes four lines over, and you lost your spot. And then you got to start yeah, all over like, again. Yeah, I've done that multiple times. I did like some little little tweaks to the bow. I made my knocking points a little bit more solid. Changed some stuff around that way. Yeah, I think I'm going to play around in the off-season with, instead of like a limb-driven rest, I may try the, the QAD style again, only because with that Matthews, it's got the little dovetail machined into the riser. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, and, and sometimes when I when I take my quiver off my bow and I just, like I'm sitting on a, a stool and like ferns or like a clear cut, and I want to mm-hmm. just like lay the bow on my lap, then that cord is like getting bent. So it's kind of awkwardly, you know, in the way. But then if I had a, a cable-driven rest, it'd be like, you know, four ounces off the center of my bow. And it's not likely to change tune much. That cord isn't in the way. I don't know. I might might play around with it. Yeah. I think Vapor Trail makes the uh, dovetail for their mounts 
Oh, they do? I'll have to look into that. I, I think they do. I'm pretty sure. I think you can... If Vapor Trail is one of those companies, if you call them and ask them, they might not have it listed, but they'd be like, oh, yeah, we can machine that. But yeah. They're small enough. They do stuff like that still. So it's, it never hurts to ask. They're pretty close to me. I think they... I think they're in, like, central Minnesota. Yeah, I thought they were... They used to be in Pennsylvania, I think. I think they were. Maybe they they moved or something. They're nice. They always answer the phone when you call them. Yeah, the, the one guy, Ears or whatever his name, nickname is, I remember I had an email discussion with him when I was having issues in my rest and he's like, well, it could be, you know, this or that. And I was like, well, I'm kind of handy. If you you know, tell me what to look at, I can, I might, you know, can try and fix it myself. And he's like, he thought about it a little bit. He's like, ah, just send it in. What the heck? And I sent the rest in and like a week later I got it back and he's had like this list of, you know, things that he had done to it. He's like, I, you know, change this out to something new, replace this piece, had, you know, a fresh strip of moleskin on the thing. It looked like a brand new rest. Yep. That's the way you do it right there. I'm, I'm like really, really happy with my arrows right now, at least. Yeah. I think that setup is going good now. Because the arrows are more of a pain in the butt than the stupid bow, I think. Figuring out what you want with that. Yeah, they can, especially in, you know, compound bows are pretty good now. Like, they're, it's not like the compound bows that, you know, 15, 20 years ago where things could really change, like the weather conditions and whatnot, they're pretty stable for the most part. Yeah. So then it comes down to, you know, getting that arrow recipe just right. Yep. No, I think, I think that, that three blade is the way to go after shooting several deer with different stuff. Definitely, I'm not going to go with the 175 grain like I was last year. That was an overkill. Way too much up front. I think my arrows were like 620 grains with that setup last year. The, it's the vented model, right? The 125 that you're going to be using? Yeah, the inch with the inch and a quarter. Because I, I did notice a big difference in, in reaction on deer when you shot them with the inch and a quarter and the inch and an eighth. You don't think it's that much, but it actually, it, the whole difference is way bigger than you realize. It's like, well, it's only a little bit bigger, but it actually makes a significantly larger hole. Yeah. I don't know if it's so a blade angle you, or what. What do you mean by the, the reaction difference? Like they're, they act like they're hit more? Yeah, they, they're just like, they don't want to go nowhere when you hit them. With, they're like, oh, like they don't like it. Like they just kind of give up. Yeah. It seems like they... It seems like just the bloodletting is like that much more. Yeah. Well, I shot one deer with that that wide cut iron will. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same deal there, but once again, it's like you build up. Cause that's like a more of a asymmetrical blade design where you got one big blade and then the bleeder. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like that design, you have a really big like plane on that one blade, you're that much more likely to have like tuning issues versus like a three blade or like one of those little four blades that where all, all the blades are the same, then mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of more consistent, um, to where they're yeah. less, they're less likely to catch the wind or, you know, you're torquing your bow a little bit 
just more symmetrical around the shaft. Yeah, and that's I felt like I when I dropped to 125 from the 175, it like took away a lot of my tuning issues. Yeah, it made it just made it easier. It was like that. It, it was like that much weight up front was so critical on getting your boat tuned right, and like that just means that if your boat comes out a tiny bit, it's a lot more critical. Yeah, you know? so it's like I feel like it's just a little safer to run it run it at less foc yeah well i'm selling i'm probably going to sell my iron wheel wide cut solids just because they're i like the extra cut that you get with them because I mean, it's, it's over it's over well over two inches of cut i think between the two blades but it's like there's been too many shots i've taken where if my shot execution wasn't perfect or a little bit of crosswind you get that arrow wiggle a little bit and it's like yeah it wouldn't do that with the the normal sized one those mm-hmm. like those little I have those little bishop heads too for a while, which are very similar to the VPAs, but they were non vented and they were, you know, pretty short. And I felt like yep. those always flew pretty well. The heads that have always flown really well for me are like the little slick tricks. Just little four yep. blades, but they got the, the vents in them. And the head overall is really compact. Those things have always mm-hmm. flown really forgiving for me. Yeah, they don't even you don't even have to like tune your bow to make those shoes. <laughs> right. They just got a really steep they got a steeper blade angle is the only downside. Yeah. And it, it seems like on uh angled shots I got a little bit more deflection with them. Like it, they kinda wanna kick the arrow around. Uh I, I have seen I've seen I've shot deer like with them and like I swear I hit the rib on the one going in and it like turned the arrow on an angle and it came out like completely not where I expected. Interesting. And just kind of, how did that happen? I, I think it was just, I was using the Grizz tricks, which was like the, the larger cutting one. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Cause they're, they're feral on those, like the hardened tip or whatever sticks out quite a, w- a ways in front of the blade. And you'd think mm-hmm. in theory that should help with your deflections. Cause that point is able to like, make a pilot hole, like whatever angle. And then, you know, before the yeah. blades ever, ever come into, into contact, but maybe not. Yeah. It, it seems like anything with it too much of a tip is kind of awkward sometimes it, compared to like, like, like a, just like a clean through like a, like the VPA, you know, where it's like, it's like almost like a chisel tip, but it's sharp, you know, and it just clean yeah. flow yep. all the way. It's like that's the best. Or like those, you've seen those Valkyrie heads where it's like a VPA, Mm -hmm. but just a really long uh, point. The only thing that concerns me at those is they almost look like they're too long. They might bend. If you hit something, if you hit something really hard, they could bend. I mean, they're made out of, I think, S7 steel. So they're, Mm -hmm. they're pretty tough. My wife shoots them, but I also bought her some iron wells that she can shoot next year. They make that short jag. And that I feel like is a pretty like solid because the tip is a lot more beefy on the short one mm-hmm. and the thing's obviously smaller. But the, the other issue with the, the Valkyrie is that it, even though it's obviously pretty sharp, the blades are still like that 60 degree angle. So that they hold an edge really well, but they're not like as razor sharp as, you know, a 20 degree bevel would be. And yeah. And they're, they're not as big of an overall cutting diameter. You know, your VPAs are inch and a quarter, and I think the Valkyries are like one inch. 
Yeah, and that's like I definitely feel like you gotta have a, you gotta have a little bit of a hole, you know. And it's just like if you shoot a two blade into a deer, like even like the two blade mechanicals, like they clog, they they clog up a lot easier than the three blade. And that's I was like talking to the guy that uh, the tracking dog guy this year and he's like he's like their their blood trails have always been much better with the three blades and the two blades it seems like he's like the guts oh yeah kinda like will that makes run sense and, you know what about like four blades though do you feel like they're similar i would think that would be even better yeah although you know, i've it's i've had flaps I've had issues with like, and maybe it's just an overall size thing, but when I shot the slick tricks, like, I don't know, it's probably been eight, 10 years. Um, but I probably shot five or six deer with them while I, when I was shooting them and on average, I had really poor blood trails, but I think a lot of that was also due to the fact that I was shooting the deer, like in the golden triangle. And so there's always Mm -hmm. like a ton of connective tissue. Like the cavity was always filled with blood, just not a whole lot of it got on the ground. And maybe that's just because it was a one inch cut. Yeah. When you shot it with the Grizz tricks with the inch and a half cut, those things were like, you got a lot of blood with those. Yeah. But they, they were like, you were practically shooting with an open mechanical. <laughs> yeah, they're a good head. I've been curious about the noise because like when, when I shoot the vented iron well, they definitely have a hiss compared to the solid ones. Do those vented VPAs have a little more hiss than the solid ones? They're not as bad as like a Montec. Okay. But they they do have a little bit more. But at that at the ranges I'm shooting, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Because mm-hmm. I'm not shooting past like 30. But I, I, I can tell you what, even at 30 yards this year, I learned a lot. Like, you, wanna, you don't want to shoot them at 30 if you don't have to. <laughs> There's so much that can go on with a white tail at those distances. It's like guys say, oh, I'm going to shoot 40 yards and stuff. I'm like, ooh, ooh, <laughs> I don't know. It's like the reactions that those deer can make, like one one day it's fine. It won't make nothing, and the next it's like completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much that can change once you get past like 25 yards. Just a little bit of movement is just could be so detrimental, you know. But that's like if I do have to shoot farther, I probably would still want to use those severs, just for safety's sake. I just feel more comfortable if they're always going to go where I want them to go past past yeah. like thirty yards. Yeah, and and some guys will even you know mix their quivers right. They'll have a, a couple fixed blades and a couple mechanicals yeah well that's what i have now i got i got the severs on the one side of the quiver and i got the uh the, the vpas on the other side yeah you know if i'm if i'm like in a situation where i'm going to be definitely shooting close it's gonna i'll be putting on the the vpa you know if it's real brushy or grassy or something uh-huh. you know because that's the sever is it, it, it i mean if you hook some grass or something with it it's going to open up Right. You know. But it's also less then, likely to touch the grass because you only got, you know, a, like a five eighth, you know, inch profile. It's basically like if you're yeah. if your broadhead is gonna hit it, then your 
your fletchings certainly would hit it because your fletchings are a lot bigger than the broadhead at that point. Yeah. That's one thing, like, everybody's like, oh, like, deflection with the heavier arrows and stuff. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I ripped I, – I was trying to I, – I put one through a buck I didn't hit so good the one year, and I was in cattails, and, I mean, it didn't matter. <laughs> it wasn't going where it wanted to go. <laughs> yeah. Started. Yeah, the guys are like, oh, I want to shoot a heavy high FOC arrow because I can shoot through brush. It's like, it, it doesn't work like that. No. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Even with a 12-gauge slug, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, there's, there's some misconceptions on it. But I think, I think, I think I'm like probably right around 12% FOC right now. I think I'm right around 16 yeah. or 16, 17-ish, like, Probably, probably 16, I guess, would be a safe estimate. It'd be higher if I didn't shoot lighted knocks, but I like the lighted knocks too much. And I'm only shooting a three-fletch, yeah. um, but I'm using that fletching jig to give it a left helical, which has been doing pretty well. Yeah, I switched over to the left helical on my new batch of arrows, and I did notice it's a little – it recovers a little – it starts, starts spinning a lot quicker. Yep. Oh, yeah, left helical, it's like a top right out of the bow, um, even with a big broadhead on. Yep, so that's that's what I'm running now. And, I'm, I mean, I got a long arrow. I'm, my arrow is 29 half inches long. So I got some length to my arrow. So I, I just can't. I cannot get FOC if I wanted it. <laughs> that arrow's probably not... Uh all that long in the context of most guys because a lot of guys will in the pro shop will cut their arrows like an inch longer you know inch past the riser so they might have a 20 28 inch draw but their arrows might be you know 30 inches yeah oh i'm sitting like at my rest yeah i'm the same way i'm like I, over my hand i think my arrows are like 27 and three quarters a 29 inch draw my wife's arrows are like they're like 23 and a half carbon to carbon or something like that. Woo. She's got 400 spine and they're like at that length they're they're like 200 spine cuz they're they're so that's short that's and like stiff. Yeah. yeah. I'm like I am sitting there I got my Apple arrow saw in front of me. I'm looking at the tape measure and I'm like, "Woo." Yeah, with with her arrows and, and she's shooting vaps. So imagine a 400 spine vap and how like small diameter that is and how short that is. And then she had th those Valkyrie heads in the front. It was like, you could just about like toss an arrow with your hand and have it go through the deer. That penetrates so fun. easy. Yeah. Yeah. For, for the shafts, those, the, I went from the, the, uh, renegade to the rampage, which is their 1000th tolerance. And I definitely, I like those a lot better. They're a little, I think they're like 11, 11, 25 an hour or something, which isn't crazy. Mm -hmm. I think the gold tip, the pro shafts on the gold tips are like $14, $15 an hour right now, aren't they? Uh, they might be. I feel like that's a pretty standard range is like 10 to 15 with some of like the specialty shop arrows, like the Sirius being closer to 20. And then some of the, like the cheap stuff like Axis being, you know, seven, eight bucks if you buy them in bulk. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, you don't want to, 
I don't want to go too expensive on my arrows. Yeah, I kind of dialed yeah. that back down a little bit. The most expensive thing I'm shooting in my arrows right now is just the broadhead. But like the the lighted knocks, I was using fire knock for a while, and now I've gone back to just the normal nocturnals, blazer veins, um, the shafts, those rip TKOs. If you buy the elites, they're like fifteen bucks an arrow. But if you buy the, you know, the sport, the you know, six thousand tolerance ones, and then you just cut off the wobbly end, they're like ten or eleven bucks. So they're not too bad. Um, but then the the little collars, they're pretty expensive. Uh, just because I've gotten the, like the hardened steel ones instead of just like the arrow yeah. shaft, but then That's for the I like the... <laughs> yeah, but then for the um... oh, you, you're you're the sleeve with carbon. I'd put the no no the, the sleeves are hardened steel. Actually, no, they're titan oh. they're titanium, but they have the they have a lip, so it's mm-hmm. unlike the arrow shaft. You're just sleeving the outside. It's it's kind of like a you know, you just slide it over and it stops because it's got that little lip yep. over the end. So you got that, I guess, separating the broadhead from the, the actual carbon. Um, so I could probably get by with saving some money there if I actually use the arrow shafts more often. And then I was using like the iron will hidden inserts, but I've, I found that the brass hidden inserts, which are the same weight, 75 grains, like I got to hit something ridiculously hard in order to get either one of those to break. So it's like, I might as well save the brass ones cost like half as much. Yeah. Yeah. Brass isn't bad. I, I actually, when I was running the gold tip arrows, I used the brass actually on my trad bow. I still use it. The brass inserts. And I found the brass were much more durable than the aluminum. Cause I was using the hundred grain brass and the 50 grain aluminums. Yeah. The aluminums would just kind of shear off sometimes. Well, the brass one's probably longer too, I'd imagine. Actually, so the brass was shorter, but it was like it would it would tend to bend before it just snapped. Sure, so it would stay together. So it might not be perfectly straight after you hit something really hard or something, but it yep. seemed to stay up. Yeah, but then that that little tiny half inch chunk of that aluminum arrow on those on those uh black eagles is making a big difference mm-hmm. on the durability it's so so easy to do i just do it on my arrow so i just cut off little pieces do you hop hot melt them in place or you just epoxy them on i just yeah i just put the uh epoxy on them just glue them in yep or i just i just use the the the, the super glue for gluing in the insert and I'll just use that sometimes. It seems to stay on. Yeah. I like using the the hot melt because then I can I can index my broadheads a little bit easier. So I can have them to where they're all I guess it doesn't matter as much as like a three blade, but with like like an iron wheel style head that has the, the big main blade. Mm-hmm. I'm able to hot melt those things in and turn them so that they're all like at the exact same angle you know, relative to my riser so that they all react the same. And I yeah. just verify that they're all hitting the same at, at distance. Um, and they all fit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm putting them in and I'll like rotate them to the right spot and then I'll put them on the arrow spinner and make sure they spin well. And if they don't, I'll just twist it a little bit, you know, with a hot melt, it makes it pretty, pretty easy to do that. Yep. And then 
I still have to go through everything and index, of course. But it seems like the indexing is less with the 1000s tolerance than it is with the yeah. 5000s. Yep, yep. So instead of pulling off like five inches at 40 yards or whatever it is, it's like three inches. You know, so it's just a little lot better. But every once in a while, you always get that one wonky arrow. And you're like, why? Like, what is it's amazing how much they can deflect and completely be different which one that was one thing that was concerning me when i i bought a couple uh pre-fletched black eagles for uh for my buddy that was he wanted arrows he just wanted pre-fletched but he wanted those the same arrows Mm -hmm. the 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 renegade they glue in the uh the knocks i was like what they, they're all glued in from, from the, factory. the factory. So you got to yeah. cut it from the front end. And that's your only, only option. Yeah. But they were already pre-fletched. Hmm. So I was like, well, now what do I do? Yeah. Well, well luckily, like, like they were, they were shooting fine. But like, like, I'm like, man, what if these things weren't indexed right? But I, I don't know. Maybe they do index them because I didn't find any that were off when I went through his batch. Because I shot, I shot a broadhead through every one after that. I'm like, well, what is going on here? And I think we had a mark. I had a mark like two of them where I had to put the the the, the cock vein on the opposite side. Yeah. Which I mean, I still got on the shoot, but I was just kind of like, what the heck. I'm like, this is so critical sometimes. This is a stupid thing. I actually, I messaged Gold Tip. I'm like, or not Gold Tip, Black Eagle. I'm like, this is dumb. Do not glue these things on. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the bear shafts are, don't come like that, thank God. That's pretty much all I buy at this point is just the, the bear shafts and then build them up. Unless you can get a heck, unless you get a heck of a deal on like a six pack of you know fletched ones, I did that this year, and then I had to peel all the veins off, and I was like, ah, oh, I got to deal with that, and then they don't never come like super cleanly off, and then you got to scrape them and soak them in acetone. It's like it'd be better to just buy the shafts and not have to go through the hassle. Yeah, and I I think I'm like I'm done buying glue for for fletching from like bow manufacturer glue i'm just using that blue loctite glue <laughs> yeah same here either the loctite like, or the gorilla glue it's more it seems like it's better because i keep I, I bought a couple i bought the one gold tip glue i bought the the tip grip uh-huh and the, the stuff wasn't sticking I couldn't get the stick. I'm like, this has always worked fine. I've never had an issue with it. And all of a sudden now, like the last two bottles I bought, this stuff won't stick. Hmm. I was like, what, what is wrong with the glue? I'm like, I didn't change my, I didn't change anything else. Cause I always just use uh denatured alcohol to clean the carbon. Yep. You know? So I was like, there's no difference there. Like why, why is it all of a sudden not sticking? I'm like, this isn't good. Because I, I built a whole dozen arrows last year, and all my veins were peeling off. I was like, you have to be kidding me. But all done building them, all like come down like two days later, and the veins peel right off. Huh. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. 
I, I changed over. I bought a different bottle of glue real fast, and I was like, it was fixed. I was like, what the heck? Yeah, because I'm running those long ones right now. I think they're, what are they, four and a half? Oh, yeah, yeah. Rocco beans, what are they? Uh, four inch. I'm running four inch Bronco veins, which are 12.5 grains each. <laughs> so there's, they got some weight to them. Yeah, no kidding. I, I if like, you switch to blazers, you'd cut half the weight off the back end of your arrow and your FOC probably jumped to 14%. Yeah. I just like, cause I can see them so good. Yeah. Yeah, especially with the helical. Yeah, you find you can find them. Although if you get that that Arizona Easy Fletch jig, you can take a short vein and put so much helical on that it's pretty much like looking at a solid profile from the back. Like the one vein almost overlaps the next one. Yeah, well that's why I have uh, I have the uh, was it the Joe Jan? Uh huh. I have that because that that was that's my left helical clamp is a Joe Jan because I use that for my. Uh, my uh, feathers when I'm doing my trad bow stuff, and that's the left helical with the. It's got the six six port thing. Yep. So I could build a ton of arrows really fast with that, but that their their clamps are very twisted. Yeah, I'll have to check that one so, out. I just ordered one of the the Easy Fletch ones, but I haven't got, taken it out of the box yet. And the only the only issue with the Jojan is they're so twisted they're almost hard to make them stick right you almost it's really hard to get it aligned yeah you also you feel like you feel like you put it put a vein on it it wants to like peel off halfway down it doesn't want to get the suction right so you kind of they're a little, a little finicky to get to get used to it so you like the first couple of arrows you do with it you're like what what this is bad and you get like a gap mm-hmm. it never stops square One thing I've been thinking about trying is, and I've always used white veins, just like all white, but I've been thinking about it and it's like white stuff. And granted, I don't really hunt with my quiver on my bow too much, but like when you're moving your bow, like having white veins there, especially if you're on the ground, like that stands out more than if you had like a more neutral color. Yeah. Well, that's why deer have a white tail. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, And I was listening to, uh, What's his name? Um, Bobby Worthington did a podcast with the Southern Ground guys. I don't know if you listened to that that one or not. The the more recent one he did, and he was talking about how like he hates wearing like light colored stuff, and he'll even wear like dark brown or black gloves um, because his hands are moving, and he feels like the darker colors are less likely to get you know picked up. Yep. And I was like, I wonder if you know switching to a more medium toned vein whether it was like an orange or, you know, something like that might not be a bad option. Cause I'm using light and knock. So it's yeah. not like finding my arrow. It's usually that hard. That's actually why I'm using the red. Oh, red. Yeah. That's like a, that, yeah. Red. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. Cause and red, red will stand out like to our eye, but not to a deer's eye. It'll just look like, you know, indistinguishable from like tan or brown. Yeah. If I, if I have an arrow laying on the ground, I usually could find the red pretty quickly. Yeah. And, I mean, you could make the argument that 
like, oh, it's harder to see, you know, red blood on a red vein. But it's like on, on most arrows that you pick up, you're looking and you're seeing the blood on the arrow shaft itself as, as much as the veins. And you can always just wipe it off on your finger yep. and, and be able to tell there's blood on the vein. Yeah, you can you can still tell it's covered in blood. Yep. Yeah. And I don't know if a deer can see it too, but especially if you got the the veins with the strong helical to where, you know, you have a, you can see it from the back, then obviously like from the front, like you can see the same. I don't know if deer can pick up on that visual aspect of the arrow coming at them or if it's all just sound based that makes them jump the string, but it can't hurt. Yeah. Well, their eyes are incredibly good at picking up movement, so they might be able to physically see that arrow coming. You never know. Yeah. Yep. It's a good question. Maybe they they can they're like pulling the matrix, watching that arrow coming in. Well, you see some guys who comment on like videos or whatnot, and they're convinced that the deer can see the arrow coming, and that's what makes them jump the string. It's like ah, I don't know. I feel like the sound is a pretty big factor there, but especially yeah. when you see guys when you see guys shoot ultra long range, like you got to take a shot at a deer at like eighty yards or something. They almost never react to the sound of the bow, but they always like drop when the arrow is like, you know just about getting there it's almost like they react like way less at longer ranges than they do at shorter ranges Mm -hmm. so it's like you would think if they're seeing the arrow coming they would react much quicker but i guess an arrow vein at 80 yards is like almost indistinguishably small yeah that arrow is so so to sleep at that point there's no yaw to it or anything it's gonna it just spinning like a drill bit at that point yeah so I think they'll they'll hear it whistling coming through the air a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of why I like the the solid, the solid uh, broadheads. Although the, yeah. the veins are like the blazer veins have a little hiss to them. Yeah, I do. I like the solid, the solid myself. It's just I can't get 125 grain in that cutting diameter. Yeah, without vents. Well, the other kind of have to you get. you can probably get it in other brands. Maybe. I guess I don't know. I don't know if there's other brands that make a one and yeah. a quarter inch cut like that in the three blade. I I haven't found one yet. I think that's the biggest you can get. Everybody wants to make these small cutting diameters because they're... Penetration. More efficient. Yeah. I'm like, I got plenty of penetration. There's no issue with that. Well, the, the one thing that, um, you know, from a sound standpoint... The solid broadheads are obviously quiet, but some of those mechanicals are pretty silent too. You know, maybe not all of them, but like the severs are as quiet as anything. You know, they sound just like yeah, a field point flying any- through the air. And you can run a smaller vein on those too. So it was like if you were ne- if you were not running fixed blades and you just had to steer that mechanical, you could get by with like a boning heat vein, something lower profile that that actually is like noticeably quieter. And that'd be a pretty mm-hmm. good system. But then you're you you kind of locked into that because you wouldn't want to necessarily shoot fixed blades with that same vein profile. Yeah. Yeah, I just I've always liked the the Bronco veins. I don't know why. I've always been a fan of them. They're just they're a very quiet vein, and there's it's like excessive stability. Right. So, I think it helps if you do make a stupid mistake on your form or something. I think it does kind of correct some of it. 
probably the only thing where it hurts you is in a, you know, decently strong crosswind. They probably kick out a little more than a shorter vein would. Yeah. But at the same point, my arrow is so heavy. It's like, and it's pretty evenly weight. Like it's a high FOC arrow would probably be impacted more, but at 12%, your, your arrow is probably getting, you know, pushed relatively evenly as opposed to the tail end kicking out. Yeah. Yeah, and once you get that rotation going, the wind isn't as 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 major. Mm-hmm. So, because that does that does cut down on wind drift. Just the rotation of your arrow spinning really good. Yep. A little extra stability. <laughs> but yeah, I think they're pretty. I'm pretty happy with the arrow build now. It's not bad at all. And then, from from what I found, I'm like. 540 grains right now at 65 pounds and with that inch and a quarter three blade it goes through everything no problem so I think that's about the right weight for a deer it breaks bone it breaks everything I was trying to think back to the last time that I had a deer that I shot that I didn't get a full pass through on and I, I couldn't think of one. The only time where I can remember it happening is on a deer that I like hit too low where it wouldn't have mattered anyway. I hit it in the humerus and that arrow didn't mm-hmm. get a pass through, but it, like it would have been, wouldn't have helped anyway because it was out of tree stands. The shot was just too low. But most of the other deer that I've shot, even when I was shooting lighter arrows and even when I was shooting mechanicals, like they would still pass through. They might just dribble out and just kind of like lay on the grass on the other side. But now mm-hmm. when I'm shooting, you know, a little heavier arrow and, you know, cut on contact head, it's like I got half the arrow sticking in the dirt a lot of yeah, times. Or all. Yeah. <laughs> like you shoot to the soft ground or like a swamp or something. It's like bye-bye arrow. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, I'll come back here with a metal detector in January. And that's that's a problem though. If you got expensive arrows, you can't keep losing them. Right, but but on those, you know, on those occasional that hypothetical scenario where you maybe you're ground hunting and that buck comes in, and he's 12 yards, and he you draw back and he turns toward you and looks and he smells it and he's getting ready to bolt and it's like, well, I'm gonna put it right on the shoulder. You know, then at that point in time, I don't want that mechanical in the front. Yeah, but if you got a uh, got a cut on contact that thing's gonna rip right through them mm-hmm. yeah that's what i like those those three blades they're just they're just an all-around good performing broadhead that's what i always felt like i would have that's what even the montex i've always had great blood trails of montex also you know because it it is it is critical to have blood yeah. People are like, oh, it doesn't kill the deer, but it's like, yeah, but it helps you find it. And sometimes they go in places it's very hard to find. Yeah, or some of the people, they're like, you know, just kind of perpetuate the saying like, oh, you don't need to, you don't need a blood trail when they die within 40 yards. And it's like, well, okay, you can't guarantee they're going to die in 40 yards. I've had deer that I've just, just absolutely, you know, top of the heart, you know, both lungs shot. And they've taken off like a bat out of hell and gone 200 yards down a, you know, down a steep drainage. And it's like, okay, if there's no, if there's no blood that turns, that turns a, that turns a 20 minute track job into like three hours. 
Look, look at that big buck I shot last year. I punched him through the front of the rib cage, like forward, but still in in the like through through both shoulders, like all all through the, all the, the the arteries and stuff going out of the heart. Yep. All that all that good, the front of the lungs. That deer went 500 yards. <laughs> How does that even happen? But you, <laughs> but had, you had pretty far. good blood with that that hit, though, right? Tremendous blood. Yeah, yeah. If it, it, he still made it 500 yards, though. It if you like, hit him in front of the shoulder, I feel like the blood trail is always like pretty good. Like there's just yeah, no, there's I not enough tissue to plug the hole in front of the shoulder. It was the blood was coming out and pouring down his front legs. Yeah, and every step, every track was like. Like a saucer cup of blood, yep. In the tr- and that that I, I couldn't believe how far that deer went though. Yeah, but it's like imagine shooting a deer on the like for you, you know, the edge of a a laurel thicket, and he goes 120 yards in that, and there's not any blood. It's like yeah. it's gonna be a long night. <laughs> That's what happened with that deer. It took me three days to find him because he went into a into a laurel thicket slash rhododendron swamp in that stuff it took me three days to find that deer i was like i'm like i hit him good <laughs> i just couldn't find him you know and that's why I, I hit that buck this year that i had i called the dog on it right away i just i'm like i'm just gonna get the dog i'm not even gonna mess around with this because i took me so long to find that deer i didn't get any good meat out of it right you know? yeah so I'm, the, like, I'm the same way now if i if i get a gut shot on a deer it's like that's not obviously yeah. the preference, but if I get it, I'm calling the dog right away. I'm not even going to attempt to track it if I know that that's what the hit was. That deer might be might be 40 yards, but it's you know not worth. He could get bumped by a coyote, you know. And that that guy that 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 came for me, I actually I called my buddy who's the game warden around here, and the game wardens use that dog if they got to find a deer. Oh yeah, and that dog is a little wiener dog, <laughs> a little little dog sound incredible animal I, I'm, and that that guy he he's he's a pretty cool dude he tracks so many deer every year it's ridiculous because in new jersey there's a ton of freaking deer getting shot you know they're all he, he's tracking two or three deer a day sometimes yeah in, in uh the places where i'm at minnesota and wisconsin they got facebook pages where they have like i guess a like all the the guys numbers like all the trackers in the region and they're like listed there so if people need a a blood dog they can like pull up that list on the facebook page and just dial whoever's like the closest guy to them and if he's you know busy taking tracks or whatnot they can just go on the list but yeah during like november they're pretty much working nonstop. Yeah, it's cool to see all the, he he has his Facebook page and he has all the recoveries and stuff. It's cool to see how many deer he's finding. Yep. Like it's also kind of like kind of saddening to see how many people wound stuff. It's like, "Oh my god." Right. You met a deer that get that get shot every year that I'm like, "Man, that is bad." I'm like that doesn't look good. But I guess that's part of it, but it's like, "Man, seems like a lot yeah it'd be interesting to know like what the you know the counter number is it's like we can only see one we can only see the number of times the dog gets called but we don't know 
you know, what the number is of guys who just, you know, drilled their deer and had a good shot. Yeah, it's always, I'm always interested in that. You know, because that, that tells you a lot about setups and stuff like that, too. Yeah. Well, Shane, Sim- Shane Simpson has this, he's got two dogs now. He's got Callie, who's been, you know, the hound who's been working for the last several years. And then he got a new one, and he's like, it's like, even if you know you get a perfect shot and you don't see that deer go down, he's like, just give me a call and I'll come bring the new one out and like do a training track basically. Mm-hmm. I was going to call him last night when I shot that doe and I was like, well, the the deer only ran like 20 yards. So it wouldn't be much of a track. So it's like, we'll find a different one for a trainer. Yeah. This guy's, this guy's all into it. I think he's the one that, does the testing for the make sure dogs are qualified oh or nice whatever. yeah so he he does a lot of it yeah i'm not sure if, if you know it seems like some areas some places some states like i don't know if there's i don't think there's like a certification that i've seen that you can get but from my observations there are some guys who basically do it like full time like it's their thing like in the fall they, they maybe do a little bit of hunting themselves but then they're primarily you know their their jo- enjoyment is coming out of like helping find other people's deer with their dog and they put a lot yeah. into it but then you have like other people who it seems like they get on like they still get listed on those repositories where people can call but it's like maybe they have a dog that's that's like not even really a blood tracking breed and they haven't really been trained very well for it, but they maybe have taken them on like one or two tracks and maybe it's like a puppy or something, but they'll still like yeah. they'll put their name in cause they want to help. And then I know a couple of guys this year that it's like, they call the dog and they just get the impression that like the dog, they couldn't even, they didn't have confidence that the dog was even on like the track. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's like, hopefully you get the guy who, you know, is really into it and the dog is really into it and a lot of, lot of experience and a lot of tracks yeah and that's what this guy i'm using is now i'm like i'm not gonna use anybody else like his dogs are like they're nuts they're nut jobs that they do some crazy recoveries mm-hmm. that buck guy the buck i had i had a had the uh, dog come in for went three quarters of a mile and that dog, that dog had no problem figuring it out. And that dog, that buck bedded like five or six times. And every time it went to bed, it would, it would J hook into its backtrack and then bed and stuff. It was doing all sorts of stuff to like instinctually throw off a predator. Yeah. That's and pretty finally cool. that dog, it was, it was, it was crazy to watch that dog like go and like even the, uh, the, the the handler is like, no, don't go that way. He's like yelling at the dog, and he's like, he's like, all right, fine. And he lets the dog go that way, and the dog, sure enough, like, it's like, yep, it's over here, buddy. And it's like, but crazy little dog, and that those wiener dogs are just, they got some, they got some skills. You know, they're they're nuts, but they're small, so you can hold on to them. But they they're just all hundred miles an hour. I was like, I've never seen such a because my mom had them growing up, but they were like pets, you know? So it's like, you never realize how intense those dogs could be. But it was really cool watching those things 
work and it, they're very intelligent, very good at figuring stuff out, you know, and they fit through everything. So what he has, a, he has like a, he has like that super slick, uh, cordage, like what was like, like zing it kind of cordage. Yep. You know what I mean? He's got like super slick stuff like that. And he's got this like 30 foot lead of orange zing it. And it's tied on the dog. And that dog just goes, and you've got that, that cord, and you just basically just chase the cord around because it, otherwise the dog gets so tangled up because it's a little tiny wiener dog. So, I mean, he's just bobbing and weaving and going through bushes, and, like, you can't – you couldn't follow him. So you just kind of have to, like, drop the cord and jump around the bush and pick it back up. Uh, very good dog. Is it? I think in New Jersey they have to like pass a test every year too. They have to they have to go through testing. I think that's I, I was talking to the guy a little bit on it. I think that's what he said. He's part of the United Blood Trackers, but the dog has to pass a certain qualification in order to even track in New Jersey. I think that's how it works. Huh. That that could be. I, I'm pretty sure out here there's not a requirement to like any dog could track, but there might be mm-hmm. there might be like you know a set of tests that you would need to go through to get like certified by the you know United Blood Trackers. Maybe that's maybe that's kind of what he's maybe that's the difference. Maybe yeah. if you call somebody on yeah, that, that list, you're getting a, a dog who's vetted. Yeah, if they're on the United Blood Trackers, they have. I think they have to has a certain qualification I think I think that's what it is but his his dogs are all they all came from Germany he, he imported his, his blood tracking dogs and they're like because in Europe you can't even you can't even go hunting in Europe without a licensed blood tracker huh you like you can't like in, in Germany if you want to go hunting you have to have a blood tracking dog on hand to even have hunting license. Interesting. I guess that makes sense. I mean, a lot of the rules out there do seem to be pretty, pretty strict. Yeah. I remember when I was yeah, out there, it seemed like a lot of guys didn't even like bow hunt because they're like, well, why would you hunt with a bow? Cause you can like kill them right in the spot with a rifle. And they were all like, you know, there were, it seemed like there was like, obviously not very many hunters, but the ones that did hunt, they like had their stuff together. And yeah, it was like, if they're taking a shot, it's like guaranteed dead. Like they're, they're aiming, like yeah. they're aiming in the spot where that animal's going to drop right on the site. Well, they had to pass a, a shooting qualification every single year to even get a hunting license in some of those European places. Yeah. Makes sense. So it's like every year you have to hit like a, a, a six inch target moving at a certain speed or something. Huh. Yeah, I'm sure if like, we had to yeah. do that in the States, there'd be a lot less wounded deer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because how many people just don't even know that their broadheads don't shoot the same place as their field points? Well, that's part of the problem, too. The places that do have proficiency tests, they'll have you shoot it like a target with field points. So you can easily pass a proficiency test and not even know that your bow's out of tune. All the ones, all the ones I've done have been like indoors, 
where they're just at some little mm-hmm. local archery range and they give you a target. It's like, okay, put five arrows in a six inch circle at 20 yards. It's like, okay, yeah. I can do that with my eyes closed. It's so funny though. Like I could take my old Hoyt. I got that. Uh, what the heck is that? The Hoyt Stratus, which is like a binary cam bow from like 96. Uh, uh-huh. right. Yep. That bow tunes a broadhead so much easier. <laughs> it's like so less critical. Yeah, I believe it. I remember I had a Hoyt Protec. It was like a 38-inch axle to axle, like an 8-inch brace height. And then I was like super into the limb saver stuff back in the day, so I had like all like every limb saver thing possible. So it weighed like 8 pounds. So it was like mm-hmm. a bow that big that weighed that heavy. It was so forgiving. Yeah, and it's just, I think it was slow, too, you know? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. The arrow speed. That's, a, I think, too, like, I, I need to have my, my poundage drop down. Like, I think if I go over 270, I have issues. Yeah. I, I'd i say for the, for me, I'm shooting 283, I think, 280, 283, somewhere in there right now. And on the smaller broadheads, it's still fine, and the mechanicals are still fine. But like those bigger broadheads, I don't know yeah. if it's necessarily speed related. But like I said, there's some shots where it's like, uh, I must not have yeah. you know executed the the shot super cleanly, and the arrow will wiggle a little bit, or I might hit mm-hmm. off like three inches at forty yards. But I know that that same shot would have like hit right behind the pin with a mechanical. So it's like I know that either fletching or speed is like right on the edge for those bigger fixed heads with my setup currently. Yeah. Yeah, and you almost—you it's like you're better off having a little bit slower. Yeah. But one thing I was thinking about too is when you drop the poundage, you're you're kind of changing a lot. Like you're you're changing your speed, right? But you're potentially changing your tiller if you don't back your limb bolts out exactly the same top and bottom. But then also mm-hmm. like your holding weight's changing. And I was like, I wonder if weight. I wonder if you know, because like Matthews, you got the switch weights, so you just instead of backing your your bolts out you have the option to put in different mods and the different mods come in different like let off percentages so it's like uh-huh. if i'm shooting the 75 pound mods with 85 percent let off right now then maybe instead of backing my limb bolts out i just switch to like 65 pound mods at like 75 percent let off and then it's easier to get the bow back to full draw but then once i'm there i have the you know same familiar holding weight that i've had the rest of the season yeah and that's I, I run my Bowtech, or not my Bowtech, my uh, my Elite, because I have I, I have the adjustable let off on that and stuff, and I actually run it on the lighter. I, instead of ninety, I run it on the other one. And what what I reason I do that is it's I'm more in the back wall. Mm-hmm. It makes me kind of it makes you it kind of forces you to hold the bow back. Yep. Because if you kind of creep up on the bow, you can shoot high. And that happens very easily shooting on an angle. You can creep, you know, so it, I like to have it so I'm yanking that thing tight. Because if you, if you take and creep up on your bow and throw a tune, if you creep up with a field point, you could shoot four inches high at 20 yards. So imagine what that does with a fixed blade broadhead. Right. Yep. That's kind of why, like, 
I think they, they want you to run max draw a lot of times because your cable tension, you get that stretch that kind of, you can do that with the stretch. Yeah. And I'm sure that matter or that makes a difference too, when you got, uh, whether you got limb stops or you got a cable stop bow or just overall system, I bet some of them are probably less susceptible to creep than others, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's, I, a, that's why I like the limb stops. Cause I can, you know, you pull it back, you know, when you're there. The other thing too, is, I mean, if you got the higher or the lower let off and like, it's forcing you to pull it like actively engaged. Cause otherwise it'll pull you off the back wall. I feel like that like just helps with my alignment better. Whereas if I'm mm-hmm. shooting a super high let off bow, sometimes I'll get a little, you know, a little yeah, relaxed fun. on the back wall. And then my, my elbow's not fully in line with the arrow anymore. And that'll cause my shot to, to go off. Yeah. Yeah, but that's why I'm I'm I, I'm completely gone from the index. I'm not even touching that thing no more, and I'm just shooting that that hex release because mm-hmm. I I used that for a while. Then I went back to the index. I'm like I'm gonna just keep shooting the hinge. I shoot that much better because it's it's not like a it's like an index release that operates as a hinge. You know, because it doesn't have the thumb portion on it, and it has a wrist strap. It's it's uh, Scott makes it. So you actually, um, it, it rotates to fire just like every other hinge. Yep. Yeah, it rotates like a like a regular Scott Longhorn. Yep. Hinge it has the same mechanical action as a Scott Longhorn, except it has a wrist strap on it and no thumb. It just has the two finger parts. So you gotcha. basically you you hold it like index, but instead of having this hair trigger like an in- index you have to physically work around through the moon to engage it you know and what i do i just have it i have it ran really short so it doesn't travel very far at all but it still makes me have to follow through a back tension every time i shoot yeah just, it kind of it kind of puts my head in the game of accuracy and i, I found when i shoot that like because i use it for uh shooting shooting target too and i just i found it just i can shoot way better groups with that yeah that makes sense but in return it makes me shoot a fixed blade broadhead much better it just it makes me makes me really consistently break my releases yeah you know, and it kind of it's in, it puts you back into like focusing on your shot cycle you right. can't just like go straight to autopilot when you're shooting at a deer you have to physically Go Think about the, yep, yep, breaking. Yeah, I went. You know? I went. I started the season off with the index, and I, I feel like I shoot the index pretty well generally. Um, you know, as long as I'm doing my part. But the thing I continually would do, and it always bugged me a little bit, is when you know I'd wear the release going into the woods, and I'd hang my stuff, and invariably I'd always like nick the release against some metal thing as I'm setting up, whether it was a climbing stick or binoculars or whatever it was. And I just hated constantly doing that to where I started taking the thing off and put it in my pocket and then I'd put it back on. And it's like, well, if I'm going through all this work, why not just go back to the thumb release? So that's what I did. And I, I got a new uh, hinge too. So I'm, I'm shooting blank bail shots in my garage, like, you know, every few days with the hinge and then like everything sighted in for the, the thumb release and I execute them similarly. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's a, I, I always had the, the, I use that, the Corgit guide jacket, uh-huh. which is like that really like elastic-y cuff on it, yep. on the sleeves and stuff. So what I do is I always take my, my, re- my release on my wrist and I stuff it down in there and then pull my sleeve over it. Mm. So it's, it's contained in there when I'm climbing. Yep. And then I can, then I can fiddle, I can fiddle with that. But if I'm using my jacket with the tighter sleeves, which is more like the puppy jacket sleeve, then I have to take it off and stuff it in my pocket when I'm climbing a tree. Yeah. But tell you what, I've been using the Woodbury again. And I like that jacket much better. Have you tried the Solitude for comparison? Yeah, I was. I was. That's what I was wearing last year. I was using that, and they're both. Both of them are windproof, but the Woodbury is definitely noticeably warmer in the wind than the Solitude. And the sleeves on the Woodbury had that that slippery like nylon inside the sleeve mm-hmm. instead of like that. That I don't know what that is like fake fleece crap or whatever they use. Yeah, yeah. And that slipperiness inside the sleeve is so much nicer for not being bound up when you're wearing layers and stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. Way less restriction. I'm like, why do they not have that in the new jacket? I'm like, it's so much better. And then the that that it's almost like spandex on the uh, the Woodbury, the outer material and i'm like that is so much quieter when it's really cold out that material yeah i liked the the woodbury overall the biggest thing for me just was the the windproofiness you know i just got cold there's times i'd be sitting up in like rifle season on the edge of a cattail swamp with the wind in my face and you sit there for 10 hours straight when it's 18 degrees and you got a 15 mile an hour wind and i just get so brutally cold by the time i'd I'd go to climb down, like I would, I'd be so cold. My, my core temp had dropped so much that like, I'd need to, before even like starting to walk back to the truck, I'd need to do like jumping jacks for a little mm-hmm. bit, like squats and stuff. And then I wouldn't even like undress. Like I would just wear full, like my full gear and just like start walking just to warm back up again. Yep. And that's a, for me, my temperatures aren't as cold as where you are. So I'm not, Yeah, I'm, I'm more, on average, 30s, 27, 25 when it's really cold for the most part. So it's like that, the Woodbury is fine for that for me. And if I get like a really windy day, I just been taking that, uh, that, uh, that Huntworth, yep. that windbreak. I've been using that as like a windbreaker as a shell and I just slide it right over to Woodbury. And that's really been working nice because it actually has like the, the collar on the Huntworth is a little tighter uh-huh. than the collar. So like, and it goes up higher than the Woodbury. So if I take the hood off on the Woodbury, I could pull that windbreaker over the top and it kind of like sits up over it and it like makes like a tight gasket around my neck where the uh, collar zips up. And it's like it's just large enough that it fits right over the outside of the uh, the Woodbury without any binding. Nice. It makes a nice windbreaker. It's it's like a good shell. Yeah, I've been doing that kind of this year with with my. Uh, I'm actually gonna sell my Huntworth one just because I, I got too much stuff in my closet. But 
a, a similar one that has less insulation is like the, the wind brace jacket from Scentlock. Mm-hmm. I've been using that this year in kind of a similar type fashion where you could, you know, throw something on underneath and then just put that as like a shell jacket over the top to cut the wind. And it has been doing, you know, pretty good job for that, but there's not really any, any insulation to it. It's just a, like a brushed fleece exterior and a brushed fleece interior. And it's got like a, you know, polyurethane mm-hmm. laminate sandwiched in between, but and it, yeah. it, it's got enough space in it where you can layer underneath and it doesn't bind up too bad. But I do agree. I like the little slip. I like that slippery, you know, surface finish on the inside or it's like a sleeping bag kind of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They all jackets should have that. It's just, just, yeah. just come with it. <laughs> I don't know why they don't. Cause like you said, they got the little, like that grabby, like fleecy, you mm-hmm. know, finish. And it's like, why it's like, yeah, yeah. that's why I like the puppy jacket over the, uh, everything too i enjoyed a puppy jacket because it's just a slippery you know yeah the incinerator from sitka is is a really good like all around like it's it's ultra expensive but it's got that nice slippery finish it's like a sleeping bag on the inside and then you got that gore-tex laminate and then a brush polyester on the outside it doesn't bind up at all when you draw back but it's probably not, it's yeah. not as quiet. It's not as and quiet as like a woodberry. But if you got to wear it when you're climbing the tree, it's so much easier to climb the tree with the slippery sleeves. You just have yeah, more yeah. mobility. Yep. And, and with your knees too and your hips, you know, you're, you're mm-hmm. lifting your knee up and then if you got your pants are binding, then you can't lift your leg as easy. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, you don't even want to like climb the tree because you're like, yeah. you don't feel like extra crap. Like this is gonna be pain in the butt. Especially if you got if you use like you know three step aiders to get up in your tree, and you're like, why did I do this? Next year I'm buying more sticks. Yeah, I was thinking about trying that that Coonhart's ambush yeah. saddle. I was looking at that. I'm like, man, that's really slick. I'm like that is nice. I'm like, I'm like, I make my own, and mine mine works great. But I'm like, man, that is really nice looking. I, I used to have the that. I had the original version of the but when it back when it was Lone Wolf, the assassin yeah, the platform. Yeah, I had one, I actually still have one. I sold I think I sold one of them, but I still have one. I had two or my dad and I both had one. But now I just use the now I just use the the predators because I got I can pretty much get any of those I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they got the larger one. I was looking at that. My buddy bought one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the XL is is really just an upsized version of the the standard, and the mm-hmm. standard weighs like three pounds, and the XL weighs four. But they're they're both designed so that because like if you remember on the Lone Wolf Assassin, the original one, it was so tall where like the leveling bolt was that you couldn't really like carry it without a backpack because that leveling bolt piece would like dig into your back. So mm-hmm. I think the they fixed that with the the ambush, but like the, yeah, the, now it's, yeah, it's back flat, back. flat. But then like the, the XL predator is the same way mm-hmm. where it's just flat. And then you got the, just like the tapered, tapered thickness. I like to do it that way with this. I just run the, uh, run the sticks right on the platform and just wear that in. Mm-hmm. Instead of having 
like a, a backpack to put everything in. Yeah. Well, they make a, then, a pouch for it too, where it's just like a mm-hmm. Cordura pouch that has a whole bunch of Molly webbing on the back. And you just drop the platform and then you can, you know, use the Molly to attach your sticks or whatever else you want to on the back of the pack. Yeah. The only other thing too is you run in with that knee brace. You know, I don't have the knee brace on them. Mm, yeah. And I'm like, oh man, it's like, it's so hard to not have that once you have it. Well, you know what What I found is a good alternative to that, um, that I've been playing around with quite a bit this year. Because there'd be times where you get those just awkward trees and it's like, man, you know, I need better knee protection than just the knee pads or, or it's a small trunk tree and your knees mm-hmm. slide off the edge. Uh, and I had built a little knee pad, um, like a knee bar that I could strap to the tree. But then I also realized that if I take a, a strap with an over center buckle and just have like two steps, like those Amer steps, one on either side, mm-hmm. and I can just strap that to the tree above my platform. And then for me, that does a really good job of like different solution to the same problem where I can just go ahead and put my feet up on the side of the tree and I can kind of straddle the tree more or less. And then my knees aren't even really digging into the tree to begin with. But then also I have the ability to leverage off those things to get around the backside of the tree more. Mm. And if it's a leaning tree, then what I can do, like if it's leaning forward, I can take those steps and I can mount them, you know, on the sides, but then like also higher up a little bit. And then I can stand on my platform, but then if I want to like be more comfortable and just like sit down for a little bit, I can basically put my feet up on those steps and then almost sit down onto the trunk. And then like your whole backside, like the backside of your thighs and your butt are sitting against the trunk of the tree and you're leaning back into your back band and you got your mm-hmm. feet kicked up on those steps and it's like, man, you can fall asleep like that. It's so comfortable. And then if a deer comes in, you can still shoot out of that position. If it's on your strong side, if it's on the weak side. You got to step back on your platform. Yeah, that's not too bad. I'm always, I'm like thinking, I'm always thinking about like something different. And then I just kind of go back to the original. Because <laughs> <laughs> like I, I went on the, I was using the tree stand for a while this year. I hunted the beginning of the year with the tree stand again. And then I'm like, man, I'm like, this is so nice and comfortable to just sit on a seat in a tree stand and relax and stuff. But then like I get into some situations where I'm just like, man, it'd just be nice to have a saddle and I could just swing around the tree instead of having to. Right. Kind of limited. Like once you're in a tree stand, if you got like a limby tree to get like around a, a limb or something to shoot where if I'm in the saddle, I could just push out real hard and get around the limb and make, make a shot. It's almost like if you, if you had the ability to pre-scout everything, you could take notes on your app and be like, okay, this tree is a ring of steps tree. This tree is a platform tree. This, you know, you can, you can, this is a ground setup and you could have that all kind of pre-planned. But even then, it's still, like, pretty hard unless you know exactly where you're going to go on a given day. And if you're going in mobile and doing what you're doing, then it's, like, almost impossible to know, like, what situation you're going to run into that day. Yeah, and, yeah, once you get in the woods, the whole plan goes out the window half the time. Yeah. So it's like, it's like oh, man, like, well, that's not going to work now. And then, then you just end up having no options. Yeah. Picking a worse one. It, it seemed like the most the most versatile like overall system for me 
which isn't necessarily the lightest, but the most versatile would be like a Predator XL and like two steps on a on a strap. There's yep. like almost any scenario that I could get into. Like if if I had to sit in like a, you know, like a spruce tree or you know tamarack or something where there's limbs everywhere and there's no way I can walk around the backside of the tree, well, I got that big platform I can just like rotate in place as if it was a mini tree stand. But then you mm-hmm. got like a leaning tree. It's like okay, I can kick those you know steps up on the backside. Or if I'm hunting like a giant tree where the straps barely fit around, then I can use those steps or even the top of my climbing stick to like basically walk around the tree as if I had a ring of steps. So it was like basically yep. any scenario I ran into, like even though I was carrying a little bit more weight, the versatility allowed me to set up and not feel like I was at a disadvantage. Yeah. And that's why I run that, that saddle system I have, you know, with that bigger platform and stuff. Cause I could, the way it, the, the size of that platform, I could just like, when I stand on the edge of that thing, if it's a wider tree, like I could just still, I'm still pushing out farther than normal. Yeah. It's like, it's like extra foot and a half to my legs, you know, cause I made it really wide. Yep. You know, I actually kind of, I actually, it's probably pretty close to the old assassin platform. I think it's probably, Ooh, I bet it's, I bet it's, 17 inches wide the uh the platform i'm using uh-huh you know so it's got some width to it it's a, it's like a regular tree stand it's just like you chopped it in half and cut it at the cables <laughs> where the cables go down to the platform and funny enough that's how a lot of diy saddle platforms are made back you know back in the day yep. before before tethered came up it's like how many of those cut up old lone wolf tree stands did you see on the forums it seemed like there's quite a few of them yeah which is kind of a shame those things are the best ones out there <laughs> i did one before i cut up one of those i still have a not a like original original but i got a 15 year old lone wolf sitting in the garage that still had the one inch tubing and like even with yep. all the mods and stuff added to it still only weighs like 10 and a half pounds yeah, that's the one I have is nine and a quarter with the strap. The only issue it has is that those the V brackets on the platform they were narrower back then. So unless you added a second strap, if you had mm-hmm. a hard bark tree, they were more prone to kick out. Whereas I feel like they widened yep. out that V bracket a little bit more in the the newer models. Yeah, I was I was talking to Andre about those stands. And he was telling me those things, he's like, those things are tough as iron. He's like, those are all heat treated. Like they go through a lot of heat treating process and everything. Like, like he's like, those, he's like, those things you could beat the crap out of and they don't break. Interesting. Yeah. I know that, I know that that, yeah, it's definitely a very process dependent thing on the, all the, the tethered stuff. Um, the aluminum and like the heat treating is all done to where like it, it's kind of it's based off the same premise right like you don't want your cast to be super brittle mm-hmm. so you have to pick the best balance of you know your alloy that's going to give you the strength but also like a little bit of ductility so that you can absorb yeah you know without you know give a little bit without yeah. just catastrophically snapping and those mm-hmm. things pretty consistently have always broken i think in like the 1200 pound range when they just load up the end of yeah. them i think but I'll I'll drop my platform out. like if I'm done with a the hunt, there's, I'll just drop the platform out of the tree, 
and just let it hit the ground and I'll just pack it up and put it away. Like I never had any, never have any issues with durability with them. Yeah. You don't have rocks like Pennsylvania though. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I think you had some issues if you threw them on the rocks in Pennsylvania every night. Plus the deer would hear you for about eight miles. Yeah. A lot of times I'll, well, sometimes I'll wrap the platform up and I'll put it back on the hook and you know, I'll climb down, but a lot of times if I toss it down, I'll either, if I'm trying to be quiet, I'll see like a, a sapling that's nearby and just kind of like toss it into the sapling and then it like kind of hangs up in the branches and then flips out and lands on the ground nice and soft or like throw it in grass. Tell you what I started doing too, instead of running my, uh, my, my ropes and stuff on my saddle, on the bag, I took that all off. Yep. And now I have a detachable bag for my ropes. So when I'm walking, I wear the saddle in when I'm walking, but uh-huh. I put the ropes in a, in my backpack that's strapped onto the platform. So I, I have my gear in there, and then I have it I have it in a little fanny pack stuffed inside my backpack. So when I get to climb to the tree, I'll put my fanny pack on with my ropes instead of having it attached to my saddle. Uh, I found that was just like way more comfortable for walking in than having the are you, bag. Are you still using bigger ropes? Yeah, like, still using the same okay. ones. So, so that's yeah. If you could switch to like eight millimeter ropes, then that becomes a lot less of an issue. Yeah, because I had those heavy aluminum hooks with my gear hooks on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started using a. I made a DIY lineman's rope out of six millimeter TRC. I think mm-hmm. it is from from uh sterling i want to say um and then i just use like the smaller carabiners that still have an adequate weight rating and just by downsizing that you know i'm using the the eight millimeter tether from tethered mm-hmm. with the, the rope man and the a smaller carabiner and it's a big difference i mean it's a big difference in bulk but also there's a difference in weight and like if you're carrying it in your backpack the difference in weight is like probably not even enough that you would notice but when mm-hmm. it's weight that's just like on your hips like that, you'll notice cutting half that weight out. Yeah. But uh, when I did that too, I, I, I found I just didn't have it as much like, cause I was getting like my pack and my platform were kind of pushing against my, my saddle. Yep. And it was like kind of hiking it down on me and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It'll pull it down. And then, and then you need suspenders to, to keep the saddle up. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so I basically, I just, when I took all that crap off and just made it smooth on the back again, it was like, now it's now it's just wearing a, a tree diaper and it doesn't bother me. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. There's a lot of people that, you know, wear their all their stuff on their saddle and, you know, people that keep the saddle clean and carry the stuff in. And I think there's good arguments to be made for both, but there's no doubt about it. If you got just a bare saddle with not a whole lot hanging off of it, you forget that it's on because it's just like an extension to your body. Yeah. And that's it. I kind of just liked it better that way. Cause I, I'm walking really far sometimes. Yeah. You know, I'm walking a lot too. I'm not. Plus if I'm you're, if you're wearing bibs over the top of your saddle and you got pass through pockets, then mm-hmm. there's no like restrictions. Like it just slides on nice and easy over the top. But otherwise if you got, if you got full pouches, they kind of get in the way. Or like that IWAM, um, 
I got a, I did a, a video on if you could use an mm-hmm. Iwan with a saddle and, and you can, um, but like when you're putting it on, if you got pouches full of stuff, they kind of hang up a little bit and it takes you a little bit longer to get the, the suit over top of those pouches. If you're not wearing pouches, mm-hmm. it's not an issue. Yeah. That's it. The, uh, those, those stupid puppy pants, the, the, the best invention ever. You put those, those on things, over the top. You put those on over the top of the saddle. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. Now without the back, the back, it's even better. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Because if you don't have pouches there, because if you have the pouches, then it's like okay, do I try and like stretch the pants over top mm-hmm. of the pouches, which doesn't work that well, or do you like slide them up underneath? But yeah. if you don't have pouches there, it's not an issue. I actually tried going pouch free a little bit or the early part of the season because I was using the Eberhart saddle, mm-hmm. and. uh like John doesn't wear pouches on his saddles. Like he just wears the, the saddle all by itself. And then he'll have his, just like you have been doing, he'll, you know, carry in his, his, uh, accessories in a pack. And mm-hmm. I tried that a little bit, but like I was, I was so used to just being able to reach down and grab that stuff. Yeah. You were forgetting it. Uh, yeah. Pack. Like it just, well, I wouldn't forget the stuff, <laughs> but it was just like, I had like this mental hurdle cause I was so used to doing it one way. Um, I'm sure if I stick with it, like you stick with anything long enough, you get used to it. So. Yeah. That's it. Like when I went back to the tree stand, it took me a, took me like a good week and a half to get it back in my head to have a different system. Yep. But, but I was using that rock climbing harness and that was definitely an improvement in that. But it's just, I think the saddle's better for me. Yeah. I'm more. I'm more comfortable in the saddle if I have to get in a tree without extra like limbs or anything. I feel like, I feel like you almost get like from being in the saddle and having that security with that rope for so long, you almost get like vertigo standing in the tree stand. <laughs> yeah. You now you're like, Oh man, I could just fall right out of this thing. Yeah. I've, I've talked to, I've talked, it's funny. I've talked to people who said the same thing and I haven't, I haven't had a stand for a while, but I, I definitely had that feeling when I'd go back and forth between the two to where when I was hunting out of a stand again, I would, I would have that safety harness hiked up so high on the tree to where like, if I was sitting down, it was almost tight because then if yeah. I leaned a little bit, like I could feel the tension there and that gave me more, more comfort. Um, yeah. And th- yeah. And it, it was like, I was some situations like I would want to go high, but I just wouldn't go high because I wouldn't feel comfortable. Right. You know, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, this is probably dumb. So I'm like, I'm going to get back in the saddle. And then I killed my bucks. I killed the, the, the one buck this year. I killed him at 21 feet. And then the other buck I shot that thing at, I was eight feet off the ground. So sometimes it doesn't matter, but sometimes it does, I guess. Yep. That's that, like that big buck that came down out of that bowl that I missed this year. I'm like, man, I'm like, I was set up like, I think I was six feet off the ground in a walnut tree. Like it was like, it was a good place to hide, but I was like, man, I'm like, if I was in a saddle and I was up higher for that, for that instance, I was like, man, I, pr- I could have hid behind it. Cause I, I didn't have any good concealment to set up with the tree stand. Yeah, you know, with with the platform, I'm like, man, if I had a saddle in that situation, I could have came up the back of the tree and felt 
like I, I would have had concealment from that deer because he came in so freaking close. And like the way the way he came in, it was like he got so close to me. I was like worried it was just gonna catch my wind and blow out. So it caused caught caused me to kind of put myself in a position of shot that I really didn't want to take, but I kind of was like, I got to take this one, you know? And I'm like, man, if I was in the saddle, I could have just kind of leaned out and let that sucker go right underneath me. And I could have swung around and shot, you know? And with the tree stand, it wasn't going to work that way. Right. You know, I'm like, I'm like, that one kind of screwed me. I'm like, I think I probably could have been better off with the saddle on that deer. No, because that that was a bad one. I, that was like embarrassing to even miss that deer. Like I, I, I still haunting me. You know, it was like a hundred. It was probably a hundred sixty, hundred seventy inch ten pointer. You know, big buck. And then I missed him at like ten yards. I'm like, how did I even do this? I'm like, I don't even understand how I missed this deer. Like it was incredibly stupid. And I missed them. That one might have not been a mechanical issue. Because <laughs> <laughs> at that range, I don't think it would have been mechanically possible to be off far enough. I, think right. I, I, just, straight up, I just straight up blew it. You know? It was like monster buck. It would have been the biggest buck I ever killed. But I'm going to try to get him this winter because I just found out that nobody shot him. There you go. So, because I was like, I'm like, I was like praying he was going to make it through this week because this week was gun season, you know? And I didn't hear of anybody getting him. I called up, I called up the game warden even because like he usually knows everything because he lives right down the road from where your deer is. I'm like, did anybody shoot that big giant ten pointer over there? He's like, not that I know of. I'm like, well, if you don't know of it, I don't think it's dead. Because that that deer would have been somebody would have said something about that deer. So, if he makes if he's still there, I'm gonna put in some effort to try to shoot him. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.